Child Protective Services, Child and Family Services, the Family Independence Agency, CPS. Call them what you'd like, but the notoriously understaffed agency is not a group that any family wants to deal with. Now, my family, we interacted with CPS for months, for all the best reasons, which leaves me viewing CPS workers as well-intentioned people, usually women, who have a stressful and uniquely difficult job. When we adopted our oldest child, CPS monitored him in our home before they would approve the adoption. To facilitate the process, our son was assigned a caseworker. This worker, a petite Asian woman, she came to our home every week. And during her visits, she performed a check of the house. She made sure things were clean, that our little boy had a bed to sleep in, and that there was food in the refrigerator. Then she would speak privately with our son, making sure that he was safe, that he was comfortable and well looked after. At the end of each visit, she would check with me, asking if I had questions or concerns. And then once our adoption was finalized, we never saw her again. And that is the extent of my contact with CPS. A nice young woman, she couldn't have been more than 25, who made sure that our little boy was safe and well looked after. A kindly, soft-spoken caseworker who wanted to be certain that his forever home and forever family was a good place for him to grow up. Other families, other households, their experiences with CPS are not as positive, not as pleasant. In Michigan, it's the Family Independence Agency that oversees their work, and CPS regularly deals with families experiencing crisis. The powers that CPS wield, they can be strong. And yeah, there have been instances where those powers were unfairly or unevenly distributed, to put it nicely. On the flip side, CPS can be a necessary lifeline for children and families during turbulent times. Lisa Putman, she was a CPS caseworker. Each day, she worked with struggling families, supporting parents and children through difficult times. Lisa made tough decisions based on the guidelines she was given by the state of Michigan. And she was, in several instances, tasked with removing children from parents who were unable or unwilling to provide their children with a safe and stable home environment. In the spring of 1998, Lisa had to remove a sibling pair from the home of their mother. This started a chain of events that culminated in murder. Come with me to an unseasonably warm day in 1998, when 28-year-old Lisa Putman learned just how desperate and how dangerous a struggling family can be. Lisa Putman, she lived in Shelby Township, and she had a good life. She liked her job working for the county. Lisa tried to connect with the families she worked with. She genuinely wanted to help people. She worked at establishing relationships that went beyond caseworker-client and helped those she encountered feel secure as they navigated the sometimes complicated family service agency. So Lisa was doing well professionally, and she was doing even better personally. Earlier in the month, her boyfriend, Stephen Quigley, he surprised her with a marriage proposal. The couple, who, according to a story in the Detroit Free Press, were introduced by mutual friends while attending a hockey game, they were very much in love. And the engagement, 
it brought the promise of a good life together. But when Lisa said yes to Stephen's proposal, she didn't know she only had a few days left to live. And while Steve, he knew she couldn't share details about the cases and families she assisted, he had heard stories about what Lisa called the dirty house. And while she didn't share specific details with him about conditions inside the home, a deputy from the Macomb County Sheriff's Department would later reveal that the place that Lisa referred to as the dirty house, it was a home located on Van Dyke in Washington Township and the house was cluttered with piles of dirty dishes, dirty clothes, animal droppings, and garbage. The home's plumbing no longer worked, and the bathrooms had buckets in case you needed to do your business. The dirty house, it was home to 28-year-old Josephine Varellen and her 22-year-old sister Jacqueline. Also living in the dirty house were Josephine's two children, aged 7 and 8. The four shared the residence with several pets, including a dog and multiple cats. No one, not the adults or the kids, cleaned up after the animals when they soiled inside the house. When child services came to the home and saw the conditions, the children were removed. They were sent to a foster home while their mother was given time and support in getting the house cleaned and made into someplace safe for the kids to live. Listeners, this had happened once before a year earlier in 1997. A different caseworker, not Lisa, worked with Josephine and Jacqueline, sending the two children to stay with Josephine's parents for a time as the sisters, supported by the agency, got the house clean and habitable. Unfortunately, it was only a few months before the situation began to regress. While Josephine dealt with a surface issue, the filth inside of her home, She had done little to address her own mental health issues, which were at the root of her hoarding behaviors. As the house became unlivable once again, assisting the family fell to Lisa Putman. Putman had been working with Josephine for several months. She knew Josephine was depressed since her relationship with the children's father, a man named Michael Miller, had ended. Lisa recognized that Josephine was struggling, and she offered resources where Josephine could get assistance, but the offers went unanswered. Josephine Verellen was either unable or unwilling to pursue treatment to address her emotional needs. Wednesday, May 20th, 1998, an unseasonably warm day for springtime in Michigan. Temperatures were in the 80s. Knowing that she had to check the Varellen home to see if it was clean enough for the kids to return to their mother's care, Putman prepared herself for the afternoon meeting. On a good day, the smell inside the home was so terrible that it was best to speak with Varellen on the porch. So Lisa mentally planned to talk to Josephine out in front of the house after reviewing what she hoped was a tidier and feces-free home. When Putman arrived for what would be her last visit with the family, She was disappointed to see that little progress had been made. While some work was done, the home was still dirty and uninhabitable. She had to break the news to Josephine. The house was not ready for the children to return. When Lisa spoke to Josephine about the home, Josephine's younger sister, Jacqueline, was there as well. Lisa was regretful as she explained that the house was not up to par and the children could not return just yet. The Varellen sisters, they were outraged by this news. 
they attacked Lisa Putman, dragging her into the house. Josephine demanded to know who had turned her into child services. Lisa, now terrified, was unable to provide an answer. This made Josephine even angrier. She struck Lisa. Then, one of the sisters produced a weapon, a hammer, and they attacked the social worker, knocking her to the ground as they struck her again and again. They used tape to tie up her wrists, and then one of the sisters produced a trash bag and pulled it over Lisa's head. The young woman was struggling, but as her oxygen supply was cut off, she stopped fighting. This torture was repeated, striking Lisa, cutting off her airflow, demanding answers, releasing her only to do it again. Eventually, the sisters realized the time. They ceased their assault because they needed to get the children from school. Cutting off Lisa's airway one last time, they pushed her into the bathroom of the home, the stinking, non-functioning bathroom. Lisa's body ended up in the tub. Lisa Putman would take her last, desperate breaths inside the dirty house as Josephine and Jacqueline retrieved Josephine's kids from school. Then, the four of them went to their parents' house where they enjoyed a dinner with family. The kids stayed with their grandparents that night as the sisters returned to the house. Lisa's lifeless body was in the tub. Her car, an Oldsmobile, was parked out front. Remember, the dirty house was on Van Dyke, a main road, very visible. The Varellen sisters, they had work to do. They couldn't leave Lisa's body there, and her car had to be dealt with. As darkness settled over Macomb County, they removed Lisa's body, dumping her remains in Oakland County. According to a story in the Detroit Free Press, the sisters drove Lisa's car to a drugstore down the road from their home. They dumped out her purse and case files on the front seat of the car, trying to stage the scene to look like a robbery or an attack had taken place near the vehicle. Lisa's jewelry was dumped at a local Kmart store, and if you're from the area, I know Kmart really isn't there anymore, but this was the store at 23 in Van Dyke. And listeners, I imagine that the jewelry they got rid of, it included the engagement ring Lisa had worn for only a few days prior to her murder. It wasn't until Thursday morning that anyone realized Lisa was missing. Because the Family Independence Agency, or CPS, protects the privacy of their clients, police were not able to immediately access Lisa's work schedule. This delay was incredibly frustrating for investigators and Lisa's family. There was no reason for her to just disappear. Lisa's life was in such a good place. As investigators waited for information to be released, her family, friends, and fiancé scoured the area searching for her. It would take about a day before they learned that Lisa's last appointment was Wednesday the 20th at 2 p.m. Lisa was meeting with Josephine Varellen at the Dirty House. Police descended on the Varellen home. After pressure from investigators, Josephine Varellen led them to the location of Lisa Putman's body. With her remains recovered, the sisters are arrested for the murder of Lisa Putman. The Varellens were arraigned on Saturday, May 23rd. After the hearing, Macomb County Sheriff William Hackle, he spoke briefly with the press. Investigators were confident they had the perpetrators of Lisa's murder. The county coroner said that while Lisa died of suffocation, she'd suffered multiple blunt force injuries prior to death. What they did to her 
What the Varellen sisters did to Lisa Putman was cruel and unnecessary. If you remember, when they murdered Lisa, Josephine Varellen demanded to know who was responsible for her children being removed from the home. And I can answer that. Josephine was responsible for her children being removed. Had she and her sister cleaned the house, had Josephine pursued mental health treatment to address her issues, things could have turned out very differently. News of Lisa's murder shocked the community, and it served as a wake-up call for CPS workers all over the country. Because Lisa was working as a representative of the state of Michigan, there were a lot of questions. Was her death preventable? Was enough being done to protect other CPS workers? Her co-workers and case managers at other agencies, they were fearful. In researching this murder, I learned that in 1998, only Wayne County had 24-hour Child Protective Services staff working. And those who work nights, they never go to a scene alone. They always travel in pairs for safety reasons. Other than the night shift in Wayne County, all CPS workers are essentially on their own when investigating claims of abuse or neglect. They can request an accompaniment from law enforcement, but the requests aren't always granted. A lot of that depends on police availability and their own caseload. Michigan's Governor John Engler, he made a public statement about Lisa's murder, describing her as a worker who was known for her caring and professionalism and saying that she would be missed. On May 26th, a memorial was held. Lisa's fiancé, Stephen Quigley, he addressed the mourners. He described Lisa as his angel. Not only was Stephen grief-stricken at the loss of his fiancé, but Lisa's family was devastated by the loss of their bright, beautiful daughter. I've read that Lisa's mother arranged for her to be laid to rest in a white wedding gown because her daughter would never get to be a beautiful and beloved bride. And as if to emphasize the need for safety and reform in the agency where Lisa worked, just a few miles away in Flint, as her memorial service was being held, another CPS worker was making a routine visit to a family. There were concerns about the welfare of four children, all under the age of 10, who lived in that home. Once she initiated her visit, the children's father began yelling at the worker, and she fled. She made it to her car and locked the doors. Before she could drive away, the father started hitting her car, and he shattered the windshield. She made a panicked call to police, and the father was taken into custody charged with assault and destruction of property. In the days immediately following Lisa's murder, there was talk of creating Lisa's Law, which would require better protections for state agency workers. Remember, if you look at CPS workers, these are largely females who are visiting homes and residences by themselves, dealing with people who are struggling and in crisis. Putman's mother, Barbara Case, she wanted the agency to do better. She wanted all workers in positions like Lisa's to have the option to be accompanied on these visits. There had to be some good that came from Lisa's death, and Barbara Case hoped this change would be it. I want to take a closer look at the Varellen sisters. The two lived in the dirty house on Van Dyke with Josephine's two children. The first report on the family came in during the summer of 1997. A worker was assigned to the case, and they spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with Josephine, helping her clean the home, talking to her, spending time with Josephine and the children. With this attention, Josephine started doing better. 
but what the worker described as a form of depression, it seemed to hold on. With the additional support, Josephine was able to get her home back in order, literally, and her children were returned to the house. Josephine, who was 28 years old, she worked as an aide at Washington Elementary School where her children attended. Josephine was well-liked and well-regarded at the school, and according to a story in the Detroit Free Press, she won a Volunteer of the Year Award for the 1997-1998 school year. Jacqueline, her younger sister and accomplice to the murder, she worked as a clerk at a local motel. Josephine credited Jacqueline with much of the mess in the home. Josephine believed that the house would have been cleaner if Jacqueline didn't live there. Listeners, the nastiness of the dirty house? It wasn't limited to the inside of the home. There were junked cars in the yard and trash piled out back. When the property was searched after the murder, some of Lisa's bloodied clothes were found in a shed on the property. The sisters, they owned the house because of their parents, John and Simone Verellen. They'd been given the title to the home a few years before the murders, and it was after the sisters took ownership that the house and property fell into disrepair. While there is little information available about their father, their mother owned a nail salon and also sold jewelry. From what I've read, Simone Verellen was not a kindly mother or grandmother. She was a difficult and demanding woman. In 1997, when Josephine was first having trouble, Simone Verellen tried to get Josephine to sell the home and move elsewhere. But Josephine stayed in the house. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information available on what kind of mother Simone was to her daughters. About a month after the murder, a hearing was held. This is in June of 1998. Judge Kenneth Sanborn heard hours of testimony. Macomb County Medical Examiner Werner Spitz, he took the stand and described Lisa's injuries. He said that she was struck by a hammer 22 times, not just by the flat end, but also the claw end. The blows were not enough to kill her. Lisa died by suffocation. A detective sergeant from the Macomb County Sheriff testified that the sisters bound Lisa's wrist so she couldn't fight back. When they dumped her body in the filthy bathroom, they removed the interior handle from the door so she could not open it from the inside. For the defense, Bruce Saperstein and Daniel Blank, they protested. They said the defendants were not properly Mirandized and that they would get the confessions tossed out at trial. Just like they promised, in the fall of 1998, the defense attorneys for the sisters moved to suppress their confessions and split the trials. Having each woman tried separately made it easier for one to blame the other for what happened on that warm May afternoon, leading to Lisa's murder. In October of 1998, Macomb County Prosecutor Carl Marlinga decided to offer a plea deal. Instead of going to trial with first-degree premeditated murder and conspiracy to commit murder, both of those carrying a mandatory sentence of life without parole, the sisters were offered second-degree murder and kidnapping. By offering a plea, they could spare Lisa's family the stress and strain of potentially two separate trials. Putman's mother, Barbara Case, she agreed with the decision. In November, 22-year-old Jacqueline Verellen pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. Josephine Verellen also pled guilty and was sentenced to 50 to 75 years behind bars. 
While in court, Josephine apologized to the friends and family of Lisa Putman, saying that she was sorry for what she'd done and that love can make a person behave irrationally. Those who knew the sisters and those closest to Lisa Putman felt that the regret and remorse shown by the Varellans was not genuine. It was a demonstration done for the benefit of the judge who would determine their sentences. As we discussed earlier, in the days after the murder, Lisa's family and fiancé lobbied the state for better protection of agency workers. In 2001, Lisa's law was enacted, making it a crime to threaten or physically harm a health and human services employee. This law also makes it easier for health and human service workers to request and obtain police assistance and support when entering unsafe situations. This also allows law enforcement to cross jurisdictions to provide that support. For example, a member of the county sheriff's department could accompany a worker into a city covered by another police agency. From my research, it appears that Lisa's law is applied several times a year and has helped protect dozens of workers over the last 20 years. One example of this involved a case out of Paw Paw in West Michigan, where a 48-year-old man made threats against a caseworker handling a custody dispute. Other states don't have similar laws or protections available for their workers, and the results have been predictably tragic. In Illinois, back in 2017, a CPS worker was attacked while investigating the father of a two-year-old boy. 59-year-old Pamela Sue Knight, she was knocked down and kicked in the head by Andrew Sucher. Sucher felt harassed by the CPS investigation. His attack left Knight comatose, and she eventually died from her injuries. Sucher, who stood six foot four and weighed close to 300 pounds, received a 21-year prison sentence for the attack. As a result of Knight's death, a law was passed in 2018, 17 years after Lisa's law went into effect. It was signed by then-Governor Bruce Rauner and requires law enforcement agencies to make all reasonable efforts to assist child and family service investigators when requested. As of this writing, Jacqueline Varellen, the younger sister of Josephine, she's out on parole. She was released from prison in April of 2020. Assuming she behaves herself, her supervised release will end in April of 2022. Josephine Varellen remains in prison. Her earliest release date is 2039, when she is 70 years old. And listeners, I hadn't planned on covering this case. It's been tried. There's not a lot of mystery here. But Lisa Putman, she deserves to be remembered. And we, as a community, should know that someone like Jacqueline Varellen, now 45 years old, is living among us. If you'd like more information about the murder of Lisa Putman, it was featured on a season two episode of the show Twisted Sisters. The episode is called Murder is a Filthy Business. And one more note before we wrap up. May of 2021 marks the five-year anniversary of the podcast. I know, five years, it's crazy. For this momentous occasion, I will once again be discussing the baffling unsolved murder of Jane Snow. Jane's murder was the very first case I covered on the podcast back in 2016. You can support Already Gone by visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com and use code GONE at checkout for a special savings on your first month. 
Audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.